Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. I'm Richard Harris. I'm your host today. And we have got a great lineup for you for today's program. Uh, we're going to be talking today about all things First Amendment. Now, wait, before you turn the, the channel, we're talking about our sacred liberties of freedom of religion, first and foremost, and freedom of speech also. And as guests today, I've got two all-stars with me, all-star attorneys. The first guest I want to introduce to you is Jeremy Dice. And Jeremy uh, it works with an organization called First Liberty Institute. First Liberty was founded by Kelly Shackelford and is one of the leading nonprofit uh, law firms in the United States that advocates day in and day out for our religious and, and uh, other First Amendment liberties in all courts across the nation, state and federal. And uh, Jeremy is a fantastic lawyer, a great spokesman. He's been published in all kinds of news outlets and appears in courts all over the place. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having us. And, and next, I want to introduce to you guys my other guest, which is my good friend, Andrew Nussbaum. Uh, Andrew is an attorney in Colorado Springs and uh, has a resume to die for. I mean, this guy's clerk for federal judges. He's, uh, I don't know, magna summa cum laude, something like that, but a brilliant lawyer. He's actually represented Andrew Womack Ministries, many other nonprofits and religious institutions uh, in Colorado and around the nation, and is, and is also uh, one of the leading experts in this state on first. First Amendment law. Andrew, it's so great to have you on the program. Richard, thanks for having me. All right, guys. Well, let's just dive into our, our discussion today. Uh, I've only got a few minutes with Jeremy. So, Jeremy, I want to just dive right in and talk about the Coach Joe Kennedy case. Now, lots of folks have heard about this case now. This involves the high school assistant football coach in Bremerton School District, I think. And uh, he was uh, uh, being discriminated against by the school district there because he dared to go and pray on the football field voluntarily after football games. Did I get that basically right? Yeah, no, that was his commitment when he started coaching that after the game was over and the players had shaken hands that he would go to the 50 yard line, uh, take a knee for maybe 15 or 30 seconds and just say a quick word of prayer uh, silently to himself, just thanking God for the game and the players and all that. And that was it. So all all anybody knew is that he was kneeling at the at the 50 yard line, right? I mean, he wasn't forcing yeah. anybody else to pray. He wasn't getting on the loudspeaker, you know, nothing like that. No, of course not. Actually, if you're looking for the stands, you might mistake, the, for, mistake him for tying his shoe or looking for a lost contact lens. But he was just taking a couple seconds to get down on a knee, take a quick word of prayer silently for 15 or 30 seconds. But that became too much for the school district. And th eventually they, uh, they, they suspended him and then ultimately they terminated his contract. Eight years later, we're before the Supreme Court of the United States with a much different result than when he was on that 50 yard line. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and talk about this. You guys took the case, you litigated all the way up, yeah, probably went to uh, federal district court and court of appeals and then the U.S. Supreme Court, and we had a fantastic result. Uh, tell us about it. 
Yeah, no, we had to go through all those stages. And frankly, we lost at all those stages. In fact, we appealed to the Supreme Court once before and they sent it back down to the district court. And we had to go through the whole thing all over again. And so we were really like, I think, six and O or O and six, I guess, going into the Super Bowl at the Supreme Court of the United States last year. And uh, thank goodness the Supreme Court uh, took the case, heard the case and ultimately returned a verdict in his favor saying, hey, look, he should never have been fired for simply doing something that is commonplace in these United States by engaging his religion where people can see him, even if that happens to be a public school district football field. That doesn't matter. The First Amendment still protects his right to be able to do that very thing. And for the school district to somehow use the First Amendment as a way to say he can't do that, well, it gets things completely backwards. It's actually the First Amendment that actually permits his uh, opportunity to do that very thing, not only for him, but for school teachers and other uh, public officials all over the country to be able to reference their faith uh, when others can reference their personal items, wherever that may be, whether that's in the parking lot, the football field, or the school cafeteria, it shouldn't make much of a difference. Thank goodness that case has now sta- it now stands for the principle that we ought to respect religion and welcome it in the public square, not banish it from sight. You know, I was at a, uh, a local school board meeting a few uh, months back, and uh, a person uh, from the from the gallery, right, like a member of the public, went to the front and 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 wanted to offer a prayer for the school board. And uh, a bunch of people, well, not a bunch, a few people in the crowd start shouting, separation of church and state, you can't do that, right? Um, has, our, has our view as a culture of, of, of the phrase separation of church and state, which I know it's not in the Constitution, but just the concept, has it been skewed over, over time because of um, sort of left-leaning activist opinions from courts? And are you hopeful that that's being set right now? Yeah, so many activists have have used that phrase loud enough, long enough, and often enough that we've begun to believe that it's actually true. It's not. And what Justice Gorsuch did in the Kennedy decision was to remind everybody that, hey, you know, there's two clauses in this First Amendment concerning religion. This establishment clause, which everybody seems to be so excited about, you have school officials using it like it's a Clorox wipe. They've got to, they've got to treat religion like some sort of virus and, and eradicate it from public view, lest it infect everybody. But Justice Gorsuch says, you know, the other side of that coin is the free exercise clause, which requires government to respect the religious exercise of citizens of this country. Uh, and so what the court simply did was to restore that necessary balance that upholds all of our freedoms and to remind everyone that what the Constitution actually says, what it actually promotes, is not just simply toleration, but welcoming of religion into the public square. At a minimum, it's tolerant of religion in the public square, but really it goes further than that to say, Religion is a positive good that we're going to protect in this country. It's a positive good because it supports freedom. And so the duty of every public official in this country when it comes to the Constitution is to recognize that those innate freedoms that we have given to us by our Creator are to be respected, promoted, and encouraged rather than punished, hidden, or censored. Well, uh, Andrew, I want to go to you now. I mean, the the, Const- the First Amendment um, doesn't contain the words, se- and the Constitution at all doesn't contain the words separation of church and state. What it does say is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So there's two parts to it. And uh, do you agree with Jeremy here that the court in, in, the, uh, in the Joe Kennedy case has gone a long way to reestablishing the right kind of balance that's needed there? 
I think there's still a long way to go, but we've made huge strides over the last several years. I totally agree with Jeremy. Um, you know, there's a reason that it's the First Amendment, uh, and and there's a pride of place there for religion. I agree with John Adams that our constitutions only made for a moral and religious people. Um, so uh, I think it's absolutely essential that the court is taking these moves, and I think there's there's more to be done. Well, uh, I want to just uh, remind our viewers, this is a live call-in show. If you've got questions today for these uh, excellent lawyers or for me uh, on this subject or any other subject uh, related to, you know, government, First Amendment, that sort of thing, please feel free to call in. Our number is 719-619-2341. We'd love to hear from you today. Well, so Jeremy, what does this mean for public school teachers and people employed by the government generally? Are, are, are they free to share the gospel? at work? Are they free to, you know, wear a I Love Jesus t-shirt or bumper stickers? Or what are, the, what are they free to do now that they weren't free to do under former precedent? Yeah, many of those things, as a matter of fact. Look, what the court was doing was to say, you know, we should be just nonplussed about religion and its appearance in the public square. Uh, it is a part and parcel of our national experience. It's simply a part of who we are as human beings. And so we should not be surprised at all when people of faith act like people of faith. And so we should be, instead of driving them from public view or burying them in a broom closet somewhere, we ought to be welcoming their experience within the rest of the context of our public schools, our jobs, or a public square writ large. And so look, if, if a school district, for instance, has a policy that allows people to wear you know, an Atlanta Braves t-shirt to uh, school that day, the, um, uh, the other teachers ought to be allowed to wear an Ichthus t-shirt or something that says, I love Jesus or something like that. That should be completely unsurprising to all of us. If you're allowed to reference or to call a spouse during the middle of, uh, you know, the, the class changing time there to make sure your kid is picked up after school, then you ought to be able to say a quick word of prayer as well. This is again, entirely unsurprising, or at least it ought to be entirely unsurprising in a nation that amongst its founding documents purports to praise, welcome, and encourage religion in the public square. And so again, this is what the Supreme Court is moving us towards again, to remind us of the beauty of this First Amendment that says, religion is a good thing. We are endowed by our creator with the, this unalienable right called religion. We ought to be welcoming it rather than punishing it. And certainly we ought not to be censoring it for public view. Uh, Andrew's exactly right. We've got a lot more work yet to do on that. But at the minimum, what the Kennedy case does for us is restore that necessary balance between the establishment clause that prevents government telling you what to believe and the free exercise clause that, that affirmatively grants you the right to express what you believe wherever you may find yourself. That's a good thing. That's where we're headed. Well, Jeremy, I know uh, I've only got you for a few minutes uh, in today's show, so I want to make sure I give you a chance to tell the folks who are watching about First Liberty. Um, how can they find out more about your organization, maybe support you uh, and, uh, uh, you know, find out maybe whether they have, have need of your services even? How, how does that all work? Yeah, I'd encourage folks to go to firstliberty.org to learn more about who we are, what we do, and how you can be involved. But at firstliberty.org, you can request legal help. You can find out that we're the nation's leading or largest law firm dedicated exclusively to defending religious freedom. We work with people like Andrew and others across the country to defend religious freedom in our military, within our houses of worship, our schools, uh, within the public square, and even in the marketplace, within our jobs. We want to make sure that the freedom that is guaranteed to us under the first 
First Amendment is preserved for not only our generation, but future generations to ensure that we as a nation maintain our commitment to freedom. And that very first freedom has to be preserved within that First Amendment. So what we do day in and day out is to make sure all Americans have their religious liberty. That takes us into court quite often, but I like being there. That makes sure that we have uh, religious freedom guaranteed in our nation and are pushing back against those who would somehow try to censor it or oppress it in some way. Amen. Well, you're in the right job then, I guess. <laughs> well, Jeremy, uh, I, I want to mention also that uh, First Liberty is a nonprofit. You guys don't charge people attorney's fees per se. Uh, so do you, do you, are you supported by donations? Can people support you financially? I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, we do all of our work pro bono, meaning that if the government's going to violate your religious freedom, we don't think you should have to pay an attorney to get those rights back. Instead, we have people all over the nation, including I'm sure many who are watching this show right now, that uh, invest in this organization so that we don't have to charge our clients anything. And on top of that, we work with some of the top litigators in the country who they also donate their time. And so we really have about a six to one return on our investment when it comes to uh, our, our hours that we provide and our volunteer attorneys that they donate to this cause as well. Uh, we give them the opportunity to really meet uh, something that they've been passionate about, perhaps even why they went to law school in the first place to be able to defend religious freedom. That all starts with uh, people like those who are watching this show who say, you know what, religious liberty is important. I'm going to invest in this nonprofit called First Liberty Institute so that they can provide these pro bono, these for free legal services around the country when it comes to preserving religious freedom. Well, and, and one of the things you guys do uh, is you create materials that the public can use to get informed about their rights, I, like uh, uh, booklets and pamphlets and brochures and things like that. Can people access that material on your website? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a number of toolkits that help you walk through what your religious liberty rights might be, whether that's in the, the school context, within your house of worship, the military, and all the other pillars that we support. We want to make sure you have that, you're equipped with that information so that you know what your rights are. That's important because if you don't know what your rights are, then it's pretty hard for us to tell if you have a problem to be fixed. But if you know what your rights are, enough to at least to know that you've been deprived of those rights, then we want you to take the next step and go into our website at firstliberty.org and clicking on that little button that says request legal help so that we can uh, can, can work with you uh, to either you know answer the questions you have concerning your rights or if need be, uh, taking legal action on your, on your behalf. I'm usually very unworried about those who, who call us and ask for our help because we usually win the cases we get involved with about nine out of 10 times, as a matter of fact. But what I'm most concerned about are those who don't know their rights and don't give us a call. Those are the things that keep me up at night more than anything else. So make sure you go to firstliberty.org, learn what your rights actually are. And if you need our help, don't hesitate to click on that button that says request legal help now. We'd be happy to, to evaluate your case. Fantastic. That's awesome. So uh, the Coach Joe Kennedy case obviously wasn't uh, the first case that you were successful at. You were just saying you've had several over the last few years. Uh, what are some of the more important victories you've had? Yeah, we've thankfully had four uh, wins at the Supreme Court of the United States in the last 14 months, including a case uh, by the name of Groff versus DeJoy, where Gerald Groff was a postal worker who uh, started working for the Postal Service when they didn't deliver mail on, on Sunday. That was his Sabbath day. 
Uh, and so he was glad to have that job until Amazon bought a contract that required the Postal Service to deliver packages on Sundays. And that became a real problem. Uh, to cut the story short, he was punished multiple times by the Postal Service, and ultimately he had to resign or face a termination, which he didn't want to do. And he, he took that case to the Supreme Court of the United States, asking the question of what does it require of an employer? What does an undue hardship mean under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act? What does an employer have to do to accommodate a, an employee's religion? And what that case has now stood for is that they actually have to do something. They can't do nothing or they can't do a very little bit, they have to respect religious employees just as much as they got to respect everybody else. Well, before that, a couple years back, we we're at the Supreme Court defending the American Legion and a memorial that they built back in 1925 to the veterans of World War One who came from Prince George's County, Maryland, Bladensburg, Maryland, uh, and their mothers erected this memorial after they got back. It's a cross-shaped veterans memorial that somebody determined violates the establishment clause about 90 years after it was put up. We said that can't possibly be true, and we were right. The Supreme Court said, look, this is, again, part of who we are as a nation. Our longstanding history and tradition as a country has welcomed religion to the public square, and the court was not about to set loose a bulldozer out of the Supreme Court building to run roughshod over memorials in Arlington and elsewhere that would knock down these cross-shaped veterans memorials. Instead, it is, uh, again, reiterated, in fact, that when religion pops into the public square, it's something that ought to be welcomed and recognized as normal rather than censored or torn down or pushed back into some storage unit and on the back 40. Uh, religion is a positive good for our nation. And time and time again in recent years, the Supreme Court has reminded our nation of the prominence that that religion ought to hold in the heart and lives of our nation. Well, this is uh, some of the best news that I think we could possibly get. Um, that, that our, our case law at the Supreme Court is shifting back towards, uh, what I'm hearing is original intent. Uh, we're moving back toward what does the Constitution actually say and what did our founders mean uh, when they enacted these documents? Um, because, you know, the decline of the United States of America, our, our, our most fundamental right is the right of religious freedom. It's the right upon which everything else rests. And if we're gonna be restoring that right, then they're probably, I think it's safe to say there really is hope for America. With about 50 seconds left before I think you have to leave us, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I firmly agree. And, and look, what we want to have happen in this country is not only that we win these important precedent-setting cases like we've done in the last couple of years and even the last 14 months or so as, a, as a, a law firm, that's fantastic. But we want to take those and apply them into our everyday life. And so we've started a project called the Restoring Faith in America Project. For instance, those veteran memorials that have been taken down over the years because of the so-called separation of church and state, well, that Bladensburg case we were talking about, and even Coach Kennedy's case, now stand for the proposition that those can go back up. So if you know of a Ten Commandments monument that's been taken down or a cross-shaped veterans memorial that's been destroyed, let's go put those back up. You can learn more about that campaign at rfia.org. Uh, restoring faith in America. It's one thing to win these cases. It's another thing to take back that territory and say, look, this is a good thing for our nation, who we have been as a country. Let's be that thing again. 
Wow, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for sharing that and uh, for coming on our program today. Andrew, I, I, if you've got to uh, jump off now, I understand. Andrew, I want to just shift to you. Um, so one of the things that happened in that Coach Joe Kennedy opinion that the Supreme Court issues was was that they, they spoke very negatively, even overruling a case called Lemon versus Kurtzman. Uh, in, in as layman type speak as we can do, can you explain that to our viewers and why is that important? Yeah, I think this is um, kind of what I was getting at when I said there's a lot, lot of room to go is we're winning all these cases at the Supreme Court, which is fantastic, but so much damage was done in the middle of the 20th century by very liberal courts, primarily the Warren Court. And one of those decisions was Lemon versus Kurtzman. Um, that decision essentially said, <clears throat> whenever uh, the government in any possible way endorses religion, and that's really in the eye of the beholder, a disgruntled plaintiff who hates religion could file a suit under that, under that case, um, then the government can't do whatever it was doing. Um, and so the court overturned that case in um, Kennedy and really opens the door to um, uh, allowing people of faith to uh, live out their faith in the public square. Wow, and so really the, it's uh, the, the whole stack of precedent from 1971 up until now when it comes to uh, the religion clauses is subject to being revisited, is that right? It's being revisited every term. Um, another really important case is a call, case called Carson versus Macon, which we, we filed a, a brief in, um, decided in 2021, that case said that um, generally available funds for education. So if a state wants to set up a voucher program or otherwise fund private schools, those funds can now go to religious schools just as they can go to um, uh, non-religious schools. That's a huge victory for religious liberty, um, mm -hmm. perhaps one of the biggest victories in the last several terms. We're seeing now in Oklahoma uh, a push to do religious charter schools. So that's a great example of how we're gonna to start to see um, the culture change as a result of uh, these very high level uh, Supreme Court victories. Wow, well that's fascinating. Now, I haven't heard about that one. So um, folks, you're watching uh, the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. I'm Richard Harrison. Uh, my guest today, uh, remaining guest is Andrew Nussbaum, uh, who happens to represent uh, the ministry here. He's a great attorney, focuses on First Amendment law quite a bit. Uh, and he's with the firm of Nussbaum and Gleason in Colorado Springs. And we're talking about the United States Supreme Court cases, recent cases on freedom of religion. And uh, this is some really good news. It's good news for all of us who are people of faith, but also for the country as a whole. And so if you've got questions or comments today, please feel free to call in. The number is 719-619-2341. Also, I wanted to mention, speaking of prayer, if you need prayer today, or you need someone to agree with you in prayer, please call in to our phone center, Andrew's Prayer Line. That number is 719 Six three five eleven eleven. Andrew has dozens of uh, spirit-filled, Word of God trained prayer ministers standing by to agree with you in prayer. So please take advantage of that today. Well, Andrew, um, uh, so let's talk about that. What you just mentioned, that case. Uh, what was that that decision called again? The uh, voucher case. Carson versus Carson versus Macon. So Carson uh, said that a a voucher program that gives funding so that students. Uh, parents can send their kids to a religious school, that that's constitutional. That's not a separate uh, violation of the Constitution. 
Essentially, so Maine is so rural in parts that it can't fund public schools. So what Maine has decided to do is fund private schools in those areas. Um, for a long time, under the Lemon regime, what we were just talking about, that case Lemon versus Kurtzman, for a long time, the Maryland Attorney General said, those public funds can't go to pervasively sectarian schools, which is a code word for orthodox religious communities. So people who really believe um, and the plaintiff in that case was a Baptist private school. Parents wanted to send their kids to a Baptist private school, and the state said, you can't use public funds for that school. That went all the way up to the Supreme Court. They lost, just like uh, uh, Jeremy was saying, at the district court and the Court of Appeals, and they won 6-3 uh, at the Supreme Court of the United States, and um, we're starting to see the, the flowers bloom as a result of that decision. Wow. Okay, so th this... Um uh, earlier, I asked Jeremy about this idea of original intent. Um, it seems like the court is moving back that direction. So in that Bladensburg War Memorial case, one of the things they looked at was, hey, guys, uh, we need to look at the traditional treatment of religion in this country. Uh, and there are crosses in cemeteries, government-owned cemeteries all over the land. It's always been understood as uh, acceptable. So that's inching up. They didn't quite necessarily, or did they? Maybe they did look at founders' writings, but um, looking at the history of the First Amendment is definitely back in vogue in the Supreme Court. And is that important and, and why? It's a, it's a hugely important now with the new majority, and it's a, a wonderful development. Um, you mentioned earlier starting a school board meeting with prayer or having someone offer a prayer at a school board meeting. At the founding, that would have not been controversial at all. Uh, everyone understood that prayer is an essential point, part of, of public life, and no one would have raised an eyebrow one way or the other for praying for public officials. Um, really, that changed around the 60s and 70s in the United States, where that became anathema. And um, the Supreme Court is opening the door again to allow uh, public prayer, uh, displays of faith, et cetera. It's a wonderful uh, change. Yeah. So um, when I when I was in law school, uh, I remember on, on law review, I actually wrote uh, a note is what we call it. Right. It's not a note. It's a long article with 150 footnotes or whatever. But anyway, I did it on a on a Supreme Court religion case called Bowen versus Kendrick. And we looked at I was looking at the Lemon versus Kurtzman decision and how it was applied. And Lemon had three prongs. You had to have strict neutrality between religion and non-religion. You could have no entanglement between government and religion. And then there could be no, um, what was the third one? I can't remember. Direct or indirect support of religion, I think, were the three prongs. And it was just like impossible to satisfy this test, resulting in extreme separation of church and state that the, that the founding fathers surely never intended and that did not exist at the founding of the nation. And so now that case is gone. What's the test? What's the Supreme Court going to look at now? The test is now going to look at history and tradition, pure and simple. Um, so they're going to go back to the founding generation, the generation of the passage of the 14th Amendment right after the Civil War, and they're going to ask, what would have the people who endorsed the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment, what would they have thought those clauses meant? And, you know, as the Brandenburg, Brandenburg Cross case shows, it was totally uncontroversial for a group of veterans to get together and, and say we're going to erect a cross as a memorial to, um, you know, uh, the survivors of World War One or the, the folks who passed away in World War One. Um, so that's the kind of test we're going to look at. What would the people who ratified those amendments have thought those amendments meant? Hmm. Well, uh, so 
what does this mean for everyday folks, you know, out there as far as religious freedom goes? Is, is this shift important? Is it significant? It's hugely significant that it's changing at the highest levels. It opens the door to, to more religious freedom in public institutions. But like I said to you, Richard, I do think there's a long way to go because a lot of government bureaucrats, a lot of lower court judges, a lot of city councils have been trained in this myopic view of the First Amendment. Um, and it's gonna take people of faith who have courage to stand up and assert their rights in hostile environments often. I mean, uh, Jeremy's in Texas, which has a long tradition of protecting religious liberty, but in places that are more hostile to it, like California and Oregon and Washington, it's gonna take some people to stand up against the crowd and, and assert their rights. Um, we'll, and as lawyers, we love to represent people who have courage to, to stand up and say, I believe, and here's what I believe, and I'm gonna do it publicly. Yeah, absolutely. As long as the people don't realize that uh, courts don't step into uh, policy and government action unless someone makes a claim, right? So people have to uh, go to court and assert their rights. Um, and, the, and to be able to do that, they have to, they have to raise their voices in the first instance, don't they? Absolutely. Um, and, and we see it every day uh, in, with pastors and congregations who are willing to stand up and say, I believe and uh, I'm not going to let the government shut me down. I'm not going to hide my light under a bushel. And it's that's a privilege to be in that situation as a lawyer. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Andrew, we're coming up on our first break here in 30 seconds. And I want to remind everybody, uh, if you've got questions or comments, please call in uh, 719-619-2341. Our guest today is, is lawyer Andrew Nussbaum, a First Amendment expert. And uh, uh, we're going to keep discussing this issue, but we're also uh, happy to get into any other uh, matters that are on your heart and mind today. So uh, call in today and we're going to take a break now for about 90 seconds, share some important information with you and we'll be right back. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. You were created with a purpose, written in the heart of God, long before you were born. He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love, to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Hey everybody, Richard Harris here. I wanted to let you know that the Truth and Liberty live call-in show is now on Twitter. You can watch us there at 3.30 Mountain Time, 5.30 Eastern Time, five days a week. Just go and follow us on Twitter at Truth and Liberty Co. That's C-O. And remember, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So don't miss out. Watch us live on Twitter. 
Okay, well, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. My guest today is lawyer Andrew Nussbaum, and uh, we were just talking before the break about the, the positive developments at the United States Supreme Court over the last few years. And um, I want to say that, Andrew, that it's been an increase in religious liberty, but I think it's really probably more accurate to say it's a restoration of the liberty that we were always intended to have. Um, and, and now you're, you're, you're absolutely right in pointing out that, yeah, we've got the decisions, but we've still got a whole lot more work to do. Um, bef uh, so, so I want to give you a chance as well to people that live here in Colorado or even in other states, how do they get in touch with you, sir, and, and if they need your, uh, your advice or assistance? Yeah, they're welcome to go to our website. It's nussbaumgleason.com. And um, unlike Jeremy, you know, we are a for-profit law firm. However, our work really is assisting ministries and religious institutions in day-to-day -day legal matters. So um, I'm a huge fan of First Liberty and other nonprofit law firms like that. They're making big strides at the highest levels. But when people need help in day-to-day -day legal issues facing people of faith, um, we're one of the go-to firms in the country to help out. So that website's nussbaumgleason.com and we'd be happy to help anybody who needs it. Well, Andrew, you know, uh, you represented Andrew Womack Ministries in the, uh, in the battle up here over the right to build student housing for the Bible College. And um, uh, certainly the First Amendment was one of the points of law in that case, but you did a fantastic job. And uh, so I can't, I can't recommend you highly enough. Uh, I wanted to ask you about another Supreme Court case. Um, in, I think this one was last year, but I, maybe I have my time wrong on it, but it was Shirtliff versus City of Boston. So this was a case involving a flag and flying a Christian flag at City Hall. Can you tell us what was that about and why is that case important? Uh, Boston flies a number of flags. They have a number of flagpoles um, outside of Boston City Hall. And one day uh, a group of people wanted to fly the Christian flag outside of that City Hall. Um, and uh, a, a group of, I think it was atheists or, or folks who didn't like religion filed a lawsuit against the city for doing so. Um, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said that that is not a violation of the establishment clause of the First Amendment. So again, continuing this trend, uh, uh, the court is saying, we're gonna allow religion to flourish in the public square. Yeah. That's, uh, that's awesome. So the, definitely the government can't discriminate against religious expression. Um, so when is, it, when is exercise of religion or religious expression okay on government property? Uh, it, like, I suppose it, it, has to, it depends on what the circumstances are, but can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. There was a case uh, a couple of terms ago involving town of Greece, um, and I think that was in New York. I'm not sure exactly where it was, but that involved the question of could you start a city council session with a legislative prayer? And the court held that you can. So that's that's the kind of thing um, that the court has approved recently. Um, you know, uh, about two decades ago or a decade and a half ago, there was a lot of fight around um, Ten Commandments statutes, uh, invocations of Moses as the lawgiver, um, kind of these biblical figures on the Supreme, the, you know, the building of the Supreme Court or the Department of Justice or in a local state Supreme Court. And lower courts during that time said that those kinds of expressions were improper. They violated the First Amendment. But now under cases like the Coach Kennedy case, the Shirtlip case, I think Jeremy's absolutely right that you, you uh, uh, local courts, local councils can start putting up um, a Ten Commandments uh, you know, statute again. 
um, and we'll we'll start to see more of those kinds of um, public expressions of of religion, um, and also uh, you know prayer before a, a legislative meeting, things like that. So. Um, I think the question on lots of people's minds that maybe some folks are daring to believe might be possible is to actually uh, go all the way back to the Supreme Court case that prohibited prayer in public schools. Um, I, I forget the name of it on the top of my tongue. I'm sure you remember it. 1963, I think it was. And, um, and that was sort of the beginning of the secularization of our public school system. Do you think under the, the precedent that we now have from this court that that's a possibility, that we might be able to successfully challenge that? I think it's certainly a possibility. You know, um, these high-end Supreme Court practitioners like First Liberty and Alliance Defending Freedom, they take a very incremental approach, and that's how the Supreme Court likes it. They like to take small steps, but I certainly see the building blocks being built to, to move in that direction where um, we'll be able to have, uh, you know, prayer in the classroom again, yes. So I think if I remember right, the progression in those prayer cases was something like this, where you had the first case was, um, teacher-led prayer that had a script, right? Unconstitutional. Well, and then school districts all over America start scrambling to figure out what are the limits of this. And so then you had um, student-led prayer, unconstitutional. Then you had moment of silence, unconstitutional. <laughs> and then they finally get to the Ten Commandments in Stone versus Graham in 1980, unconstitutional, can't have them displayed in school either. So the, they got, got us to a place of almost complete secularization of our public schools. It started to undo, I think, when uh, with the equal access cases, like can we have a Christian club after school? You have other clubs. Well, yeah, I suppose that's okay. And now here we are saying actually students and faculty have near full uh, free exercise rights uh, in, in school. And we don't know exactly the limits of it yet, but sure seems like we ought to get some level of, of voluntary student prayer allowed in school again. I totally agree. I think we'll start to see that in schools, um, in legislative bodies, um, in other areas. The other case to just really highlight, and this is kind of going beyond public institutions, but is another First Liberty case, Groff versus DeJoy, and that involved Title VII, which applies to private employers. And yep. what the court said last term in Groff versus DeJoy is that employers, employees, religious employees, have broader rights than was historically understood uh, in under employment discrimination laws. So we're gonna see what that means over the next several years, but if um, you can't work on Sundays, that's what the case involved, because um, you believe that uh, you, know, you need a day of rest, Sabbath, um, that's the kind of thing that uh, an employer is going to have to think twice before you know, taking some adverse action against you. So I think both in the public uh, sphere, but also in the private sphere, we're gonna see um, greater, greater permission for religious expression from the courts. Mm. Do you suppose there's any, <clears throat> any hope that the government could take action um, in, in terms of regulating social media by chance? Like say if they were to treat social media as a utility or something like that and uh, begin to require equal access or freedom of religion in those contexts, is that something that you could also see on the horizon as being? Now I know that's a, a totally different analysis <laughs> legally, but help me out here. <laughs> yeah, so my, my co-clerk for one of the federal judges I clerk for is currently the Solicitor General of Missouri. And before that, he was the chief counsel to uh, Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, 
And there are lots of um, moves going through Congress right now talking about Section 230, um, which has to do with how you regulate um, social media companies. Right now, uh, there's, there's basically no regulation that the government's doing for those entities. I absolutely think that there's uh, possible government fixes out there to do exactly what you just said, which is treat social media like a telephone company. And what telephone companies have to do, they have to say, if you want to say uh, something for conservatives over the telephone, we have to allow it. If you want to say something for liberals over the telephone, we have to allow it, or, or, or Christian, or whatever um, you know, group you want to speak for. Um, social media right now can discriminate against you uh, if you are uh, a particular political persuasion or a particular religious persuasion. Um, and I do think that there are very interesting changes afoot regarding uh, allowing equal access and equal time for, for people of faith on the Internet and on social media. Well, once again, uh, folks, you're watching today the Truth and Liberty live call-in show. And uh, I wanted to remind you that uh, you can call in with your questions for Andrew Nussbaum, uh, an attorney out of Colorado Springs. The number is 719-619-2341. We're talking about the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, uh, where it says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And uh, we talked earlier about bringing back the balance by invigorating the free exercise part of that. Uh, for decades and decades now, it's been mostly the establishment clause where um, we've been restricted and restricted and restricted. Because as the government, you know, as the government takes over more of society, become involved in, you know, providing services here, education here, this and that, and so on and so on, then the restriction on the establishment clause, if it's broadly interpreted, means you're squeezing religion out of all those areas too. And that seems uh, like maybe we're, we're gaining some important victories there. But I want to talk, Andrew, about... Um, where we might be headed right now as there seems to be, um, well, I know that there's scuttlebutt going on about a resurgence of COVID and a possibility of a lockdown again coming back and masks and vax mandates and even some localities around the nation are requiring masks again because of some variant that is, that is uh, I guess, spreading a little bit. Um, tell me about your, your view of lockdowns. What happened back in 2020, 2020 and 2021, um, just broadly speaking, legally? Um, lots of folks were complying with it. Some people eventually chose not to. Some lawsuits got filed. Where did where are the parameters now? Are there any anything any prohibitions on this lockdown approach uh, that we can rely on if the government tries to go there again? Well, what happened in 2020 and 2021 was probably the greatest invasion of American civil rights in the history of the country. I mean, just the government acted outside of constitutional and procedural norms like we've never seen. The good news, Richard, is that the Supreme Court got an A-plus for their response um, to those COVID mandates, especially in the free exercise clause um, context. So the court decided a series of cases involving um, California and New York primarily, where um, you know Governor Cuomo in New York was going after uh, uh, churches and synagogues specifically. He was targeting them to shut them down. Supreme Court said you cannot do that. And similarly, out in California, Governor Newsom was going after Cal Calvary Chapel um, in, and also in Nevada. And so Nevada is a great example. They were saying, we're going to open up casinos mm -hmm. while churches have to be shut down. 
and and the Supreme Court said that is blatant religious discrimination, and you cannot do that in Nevada, California, New York. You have to stay open. We also saw that here in Colorado, yeah. um, and you know, pot shops were allowed to be open, but uh, Baptist churches in Denver were not. Uh, and luckily, um, our federal district court here in the state said uh, you can't do that. Yeah, and and that uh, that Supreme Court case out of New York, uh, the the regime there in New York was so similar to Colorado's that Governor Polis saw the writing on the wall and and backed down in our lawsuit that we had uh, over the COVID restrictions. But um, do you see the left being able to possibly? Uh, take a second bite at the apple there, reformulate their approach and somehow get around that, those uh, Supreme Court cases if there is a second wave of COVID? I think there are so many bureaucratic government institutions in the United States that there's a lot of levers to pull. So it takes a long time to get a lawsuit through the courts and to get an injunction and all those things. So the short answer is yes, I think there's some danger there, especially in states um, you know, that are less respective of folks' rights and, and religious liberty. Um, however, I do think once they start to bubble up, and I think they'll bubble up more quickly, um, the federal courts are going are gonna to tamp down some of the craziness this time around. Yeah. You know, in that in our COVID lawsuit, I, I'll just tell you, Andrew, it seemed like to me that the, the judge on the case um, had virtually no respect for the factual arguments and evidence on our side and took the government's side without question, uh, literally like incorporating large parts of their, their affidavits into his brief without even referencing our, our affidavits and this sort of thing. Um, there seemed to be across the judiciary during COVID, and I'm, this is both state and federal for the large, for except, Supreme Court accepted, um, that, that courts would not even question the narrative, right, of this massive threat to public health that justifies this extreme draconian measures that have never been seen before in any epidemic. Um, do you think because, uh, do you think that maybe the whole COVID thing has lost enough credibility that maybe courts will be more open to hearing uh, fact-based arguments at this point? This is getting a little bit into the weeds, um, but there was a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts that all the early decisions were relying on. That was a case from 1905, and so much has changed between 1905 and 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023 in constitutional law. But at the beginning of the pandemic, lots of courts were citing that case and saying, in the time of a pandemic, we defer to whatever the government says, which is, just if you've gone to law school, that turns civil liberties topsy-turvy on their head. We don't defer to the government when they infringe our rights. Um, and luckily, the Supreme Court said, Jacobson is no longer as strong as you think it is in the context of pandemics. And so um, we're gonna enforce the free exercise clause even when um, their government says that there's some public health crisis. Well, Andrew, I've got a lot more stuff I want to talk to you about, but we've also got callers who are calling in now, and uh, I do want to give them a chance to uh, pick your brains a little bit if you're okay with that. I'd like to go uh, to AJ from Colorado. Uh, AJ, you're on the on the air with Andrew Nussbaum on Truth and Liberty. Hey, Richard and Andrew. I was wondering if any of the allegations and prosecutions against President Trump would cause him to not be able to become president. Oh, that's a good one. Andrew, what do you think? You first. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, a bit beyond my practice area. Um, 
You know, I think that there are uh, there's actually a lawsuit that was filed um, just last week in the in um, federal and state district court in Denver um, challenging Trump, President Trump's access to the ballot in Colorado under Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, that is a very novel argument in constitutional law. Uh, and my guess is that it will be shut down in the courts, but um, you never know. And you see you see kind of crazy things happen in the courts every day. Um, and so I think we're going to see more of those kinds of lawsuits, especially in um, more liberal jurisdictions, uh, coming forth. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think um, that so basically what it is, folks, is the 14th Amendment says, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but it says that no one who has engaged in insurrection against the United States but has sworn allegiance to the United States can hold the office of president. Um, so they're basically saying Donald Trump's actions on January 6th, I suppose, constitute insurrection against the United States. So I think they have a huge factual mountain to climb there to prove that. But then even even uh, as a matter of interpretation, is that really what that amendment's talking about? Or is that particular clause of the 14th Amendment confined to the Civil War insurrection that it was uh, related to? Uh, so who knows? Liberal judges might, might jump on the opportunity to kick Donald Trump off the ballot. But I have have a hard time thinking the United States Supreme Court would allow that to stand uh, unless a lot of evidence comes forth that we just haven't heard yet. So, um, but a great question, AJ. Thank you for calling in for that. Uh, next, I'd like to go to Elizabeth, who's a Truth and Liberty subscriber. Elizabeth from the state of Missouri. Thank you, Elizabeth, for calling. What's your question for Andrew Nussbaum? Um, hi, Andrew, and hi, and hi, um, Richard. I. Um, First of all, I just wanted to say that this program has just boosted my um, hope in seeing our nation restored to what it was founded to be. And I want to thank you so much. I just want to thank you. My mm, you're welcome. Is I was uh, wondering if um, the federal uh, supplements to private schools, if they actually agree to that, is that going to have mandates attached to where they're required to um, do certain things that would go against parents or like what they're doing in the public school? I'm not sure. I'm just. Like you're, you're yeah, Elizabeth, you're saying can, are states going to like uh, tie strings to that money uh, to condition it on doing things like, you know, whatever. Um, uh, getting vaccinated or reporting requirements or whatever, uh, things like that. Is that basically what you're asking? Yes, that is exactly. Okay. Andrew, what do you think? I think the answer is unfortunately yes. And let me just tell you about um, two cases in Colorado that are pending. Um, Colorado just formed a new government agency um, regarding early childhood, de childhood development and essentially empowered it to make law. One of its first regulations um, uh, under that new uh, provision was requiring all preschools in the state who receive public funds um, to not discriminate on the basis of religion uh, and to uh, follow, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity mandates from the state, quote unquote. Um, and so that means if you are a uh, a Christian preschool in Teller County, Colorado, or, or a, a Catholic preschool up in Denver, Colorado, because that's one of the cases. There's one in Buena Vista as well, Evangelical Christian. Um, you cannot receive uh, those universally available funds for pre-K. Um, and so the state's trying to say, 
if you're a religious organization, you can't do preschool. Um, luckily, we have two lawsuits pending against um, that program specifically, and we'll see how the courts deal with it. But I can I, I can guarantee you're going to see more mandates like that from the state and federal governments. So, so Andrew, just uh, let me follow up on that. So, the, uh, any state anywhere, let's say they they mandate uh, procedures or, or policies for schools that accept vouchers, and those those mandates apply to public schools. And, and so the state will say, see, we're, we're just treating everybody alike here. But they would, they would force the religious school to violate its uh, sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, who's going to win that fight, do you think? Who should win it? So let me clarify a little bit about the program. The program says, here's a pile of money for universal pre-K for all of the private preschools in the state of Colorado. So any private preschools allowed to take this money so long as they uh, adhere to the currently in vogue um, diversity regime and, and you know secular regime of the state of Colorado. That's essentially what the regulations, regulation says, excuse me. And um, that goes back to that main case I was telling you about, Richard, Carson versus Macon. The court, um, a state cannot condition a publicly available benefit on um, an institution giving up their religious beliefs. Uh, and so I do think that uh, the schools that are challenging the universal pre-K regulation in Colorado are gonna win that case. Do you think, um, so one of the recent cases, and we're gonna get to the other callers here in just a minute, but so one of the most important to me, recent cases comes out of Colorado, it's the 303 Creative case. Um, so this is the case where um, a website designer, photographer, I think, but a website designer, she has wedding, uh, she photographs weddings and then puts the photos on her website and so on. Um, and her business was called 303 Creative. Uh, she was asked to do a gay wedding and she declined because uh, her religious convictions wouldn't allow her to do th something to support something that she that the Bible says is sin. And the United States Supreme Court has ruled in her favor, said that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission acted improperly in attempting to enforce the otherwise applicable sexual orientation, gender identity law against her. So wouldn't that wouldn't that same standard apply to the preschool grant issue? Uh, it, it, it will, and anytime the government singles out religion for disfavored treatment, uh, that's gonna raise alarm bells under these new Supreme Court cases, and we're gonna see courts latching onto that and saying, government, you cannot do that. Yeah, um, so that's really uh, awesome. Um, okay, let's go to our next caller, Donna, uh, who's uh, Truth and Liberty and Andrew Womack Ministries partner. Thank you so much, Donna, who's uh, calling in from the state of Texas. How are you today, Donna? Hi, hi. Um, my question is kind of, I mean, I agree with what Elizabeth said, the previous caller, that we're watching this program and so many other uh, programs and uh, videos and stuff, and we're learning so much about the goodness that's happening now. But my concern is for the people that don't know. They, they don't see any good happening. You know, like I was a year ago, a year and a half ago, I just thought it, we're doomed. We're never going to get any, get ahead. We're never going to do anything. What can be done for them since the media and nobody's going to tell them? And maybe they're not Christians and they're not going to church or, you know, they don't know about your program. I mean, 
what can be done for them? Well, thank you, Donna, for that question. Um, Andrew, you want to respond or should I tackle this one? Why don't you take it first, Richard? Okay. Well, Donna, I've got some suggestions. First of all, you need to tell all your friends and family to watch, to watch Truth and Liberty, uh, right? That's the that's the obvious thing, and then they can get encouraged too. Um, but also, like specifically, uh, when it comes to these Supreme Court cases, um, the the you could uh, send people a link to the First Liberty website, right, where they're going to see the wins that First Liberty has achieved. Uh, as they will be, you know, um, describing those those victories and everything. And then, but there's other firms besides First Liberty too, like um, uh, Liberty Council with Matt Staver, um, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, um, they're in uh, based in Arizona, uh, Pacific Justice Institute. So all of those are things that you know, if you get informed about, you can help to share that good news. Um, also, tell your friends to sign up as subscribers to Truth and Liberty. We have a, a weekly email we send out called The Good Report, uh, where we share some, some of the good headlines that are going on. And uh, those are just a few things that you could do to help, help spread the word. All right. Well, Donna, thanks again for your question. Uh, Andrew, uh, you want to add to that or are we good? All, all I want to say is, you know, people of faith, it's time to stand up and have courage and, and, and speak truth in, in the public square. And that's I can't emphasize how important that is that people are willing to express their faith publicly. That's right. And it, it is reassuring that we have awesome Christian lawyers like you, Jeremy Dice, and so many others that can come in behind you if you do get attacked uh, or wrongfully uh, treated by the government or even by, by uh, uh, employers or others. So, um, all right, well, we've got two minutes left in this uh, segment. And uh, so I, we have a caller on the line, but I'm gonna defer that call until after our break. Um, and Andrew, I wanted once again for you to just share how people can get in touch with you, your website, and um, um, how, yeah, how they can reach you. Yeah, you can go to our website at NussbaumGleason.com. Um, we're a law firm based in Colorado Springs, and we represent individuals and, and religious organizations, lots of ministries across the country in um, religious liberty issues, religious liberty fights, and also just counseling. You know, one of the most important things you can do if you are a church or a ministry is uh, take steps on the front end to enhance your religious liberty protection. So that's some of those things that Jeremy was talking about, religious liberty toolkits, but looking through all your documents, making sure there are no unnecessary risks there. But um, we help folks every day in all different kinds of settings, and our website's nestbombgleason.com. Awesome. Okay. So um, uh, let me see if I can squeeze in one more question for you, uh, Andrew. If, if you could comment on um, the... Uh, the case that you mentioned, that's that preschool case again. Um, basically, there are school voucher programs all over the nation now, and there's increasing numbers. Um, and it's your position, you're, you believe that it's unconstitutional for the government to condition those vouchers on waiver of religious beliefs or, or compromise of religious beliefs. Is that right? And that's absolutely right, and it's right for two reasons. One is it sings out, singles out people of faith for discrimination. So if, if a group of Baptists want to get together and start a school, why should they not be receiving public funds when a group of humanists get the same funds? Um, but the other reason is when the government says, we're going to decide what's too religious, 
they start having to get into really tricky questions of deciding theological questions. And so um, we've seen that throughout the years where they, uh, they get into really tricky situations of discriminating against orthodox religions and versus kind of more uh, squishy ones, for lack <laughs> of a better word. Yes. All right, guys, well, we're up against a break now. So we're going to stop for about 90 seconds, share some announcements with you. And Andrew and I will be right back after that. We got to stop looking at this word as someday. We got to look at it. it is for now. And the Spirit of God, don't you think is big enough to teach you, to show you how to do things? Stop thinking that one day when I am super spiritual or when I have the money I need. No, start doing what He called you to do right now with the strength you have. So, Father, we say yes to that today. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. It's not enough to know what God's will is, but you have to learn how to do things God's way. Now, because of the new man on the inside of me, because of the cross, I can daily deny self. And if you don't learn to do that, you're not going to fulfill all God's will for your life. You know, you don't find the beginning of God until you get to the end of yourself. All right, guys, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris, and my guest today is uh, my good friend, lawyer Andrew Nussbaum. And uh, we've just been uh, talking about the First Amendment to the Constitution and the progress that's been made in recent years uh, to restore our constitutional freedoms as our founders intended. And I tell you, it's just so encouraging. I believe that if we, you know, the Bible says, um, and forgive me, I forget the psalm that it says this, and I think it might be Psalm 35, but if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I think the answer to the psalmist is, well, we have to rebuild the foundations. And if we can restore religious liberty and freedom of speech in this nation, uh, that is one of the, that's probably the, the, the capstone, the center. I mean, it, it's the key to, to having a solid foundation. All other rights flow from freedom of religion. Is, am, I, am I right on that, Andrew? Do you have any thoughts there? You're 100% right. Like I said at the outset, I'm with President John Adams 100% that our Constitution cannot function without a moral and religious people. You know, our democracy is, it was a brand new experiment in the history of the world. And the only way government of the people works is if we have a self-controlled and religious and moral uh, body politic. Without that, um, you're going to see uh, just terrible things happen as we've seen changes over the last 50 years in the country. So um, the restoration of religious freedom uh, and the restoration of free speech conscience is absolutely essential to the flourishing of our country. You know, we talked, uh, we've got a couple callers on the line. I'm going to get to you guys here in just a second, but one more question. Um, we talked about the 303 creative case. This was uh, 
Uh, Lori Smith, who won at the United States Supreme Court because Colorado tried to tell her she had to, she had to put gay weddings on her website. And she said, I can't, I'm a Christian, it's a sin, I can't participate in that. Uh, Colorado said, we don't care, you're going to get fined. The United States Supreme Court said, wait a second, the First Amendment protects her decision in this regard. Does, what does this mean for the Jack Phillips case, the baker, cake baker in Denver? And uh, uh, do you see a good outcome coming soon in that case? Well, before we talk about Jack, let me just talk about uh, 303 Creative. It's even worse than you said, Richard. Um, the state of Colorado, Lori wanted to put on her website a statement of faith about what she believes. And the state of Colorado said that's so hateful, you cannot include it on your website. They wanted to just straight up silence her. I mean, if that's not a textbook, first day of law school, First Amendment free speech violation, I don't know what is. Right. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court held. Um, we will see what the Supreme Court of Colorado does with Jack Phillips. He's back up there again. Um, I was honored to file an amicus brief on behalf of Truth and Liberty um, in support of Jack. Um, they absolutely should do the right thing. And I don't. I think if they don't, the Supreme Court of the United States is probably going to shoot them down again. Yeah, well, that's what we're all believing for, and I, I agree with you on that. So that's going to be a great day. All right, well, let, next I'd like to go to Sarah, uh, an Andrew Womack Ministries partner in the state of Texas who's on the phone. Sarah, you're live on Truth and Liberty. Oh, we'd lost her. Okay, maybe she'll call back. Let's go to Tony in North Carolina. Tony, you're on the air. Yes, thank you very much for taking my question, and may the peace of Christ be with both of you guys. Um, thank you. My question is, uh, I had uh, watched an episode of Mark Levin, and uh, it's been a while back, and he talked about uh, that there were five states during the 2020 election that, uh, through the courts, the Democrats uh, took cases to court, and uh, the election laws were changed. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Constitution states that only the state legislatures have the right to change election laws. So I'm wondering if the Supreme Court should have stepped in there or, or if it made the election uh, illegitimate. All right. Well, good question, Tony. Thanks for asking. Andrew, I'm going to uh, let you tackle this one, buddy. Yeah, so I think, Tony, you're referring to what's called the independent state legislature's doctrine. That's kind of the legalese for the idea that um, legislatures, state legislatures and not the courts have the authority to, to determine how elections function. Um, the Supreme Court ultimately, in a case involving North Carolina, uh, said that the independent state legislature's doctrine is invalid and state courts do have a role in interpreting state law, you know, whether or not that, that was the right decision is an open question, um, but um, that is what the Supreme Court has said on the issue. I do think you saw around the 2020 election a lot of changes at the last minute um, from courts, which does, I think, raise questions um, regarding just the normal course of elections in the United States. Well, and, and to, I think, Tony, the, your question kind of raises a bigger issue, which has to do with uh, proper judicial uh, function. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier in the show about original intent. And I think that um, courts sometimes, uh, an activist court to me can be defined as a judge 
that um, interprets a statute based on what he or she desires the outcome to be, not based on what the legislature intended the outcome to be or intended the meaning of the law to be. And they think that um, the, the idea, like, for example, with the Constitution is, well, the Constitution was a, is a living document intended to be to change with the times. And so who gets to decide when it should change? Well, we do, uh, us unelected guys sitting up here on this bench with black robes on. It's a highly unrepublican and undemocratic principle, and I'm really excited to see the U.S. Supreme Court moving away from that idea. Uh, there, there was a famous judge one time who said, the law is what the judge says it is. That's an extremely dangerous concept. The, the, it, it means the law doesn't have any meaning in and of itself until it's interpreted by a judge, so no one knows. Um, and it's almost like a divine oracle where you go to get the answer to the mystery. And uh, it, that's not a republic, that's a dictatorship. Uh, that's an oligarchy, and we can't have that in America. That's contrary to everything we were founded on. That's my soapbox on the subject. Um, I think Andrew would agree with me, but I'll give you a chance to kind of <laughs> respond to that, Andrew. <laughs> No, I think that it's the least democratic branch of our system of government, the judiciary. Um, and I absolutely think that it's important that we have modes of judicial interpretation that uh, restore the rule of law. And that would be saying, what was the original purpose, the original meaning of the statute or a constitution or issue, and what's the history and tradition around it? Um, and that, that's going to hem in um, uh, you know, radical judges and ensure that uh, the people get the say over how the government's run. Right. All right. Well, folks, uh, if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment here, uh, please call into our number, 719-619-2341. We've got some open lines, and we'd love to hear from you today. Um, uh, so I have... I have another question online here, Andrew, that I'd like to ask you about from one of our viewers. And, and that is, um, where do judges get the authority to, quote, call a grand jury? Uh, so we've heard about these grand juries lately. I think the caller is pro or probably curious about this, what's happening to President Trump with these grand juries indicting him. What's a grand jury and how does it get impaneled? Uh, a grand jury is essentially a body of individuals from the community um, that listens to evidence from a prosecutor. It's often private. And this is, you're, all the criminal law uh, attorneys on the, on the call are going to have to excuse me if I get anything <laughs> wrong. Uh, but it's often um, private. There's, there's um, secrecy around the grand jury. And then they make a determination collectively about whether or not to issue an indictment. And uh, grand juries are provided for in the Constitution. Um, it's an old English common law system that was adopted in the United States um, when the country was founded. Um, and uh, that's, that's essentially where the authority comes from. It's, it's, uh, it's supposed to be a democratic check on government authority because a prosecutor has to go before a jury of local regular people and say, here's the evidence I have, here's what the criminal statutes say, and, and you have to decide one way or the other whether or not there's been probable cause here for a crime. Yeah, and, and there's two things about grand juries that I think people need to know. Number one is the defendant's not there, and the defendant doesn't get to present his evidence. So it's a totally one-sided affair. Um, and the other thing is they're not, they're not deciding guilt or innocence, right? So they don't, the standard for them is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's whether the prosecution would have 
reason to believe, basically, so probable cause. Does the prosecution have probable cause to think a crime was committed based on this one-sided one stack of evidence? And so it's not, uh, a lot of times it's not that difficult to get an indictment from, from my observation. Now, I never practiced criminal law, so that last bit is just, uh, uh, you take it for what it's worth. <laughs> but uh, thank you, Tony, for calling in. We really appreciate your question. Next, I want to go to Verna from the amazing state of Alaska. Verna, thanks for calling into Truth and Liberty today. Awesome. Thank you for taking my call. Um, and I want to um, thank you for you and for everyone else that, that works really hard in making sure that we're informed and knowing the truth and um, in, in all these cases in how to react and how to respond, especially in a godly manner. So um, my question is this, well, it's a comment, it's, it's a little background and then, a, and then a question. So I work for an organization that promotes pride celebrations and requires that we sit in an introduction and training regarding diversity, equity and inclusion related to LGBTQ Stuff. I don't know if I said that right. Um, I don't believe what they believe, and if they're being true to diversity, equity, and inclusion, then why can't they offer introduction and training on the Word of God and the Bible? And what can I, what can I say or do to make a stand based on my faith and belief in the Word of God? All right. Thank you, Verna. Excellent question. Uh, we're going to take a break so Andrew and I can confer about this one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a great question, Verna. Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, I think that to the extent we're going to do diversity, equity, and inclusion training, um, I think probably the most important aspect of diversity in the United States is religious freedom. Um, so, I, you know, I think if you can advocate for private employers uh, and, you know, government institutions to train their employees about the beauty and, and just amazing uh, historical example that is the United States that it would say you can come here and practice your faith freely. Um, I think that absolutely should be part of uh, that training. And um, I, would, I would suggest you advocate for it. I mean, I don't think people realize that our country was really founded in opposition to religious persecution. People came to the United States in the 18th century fleeing kings who said, you have to believe this and say this. Um, and people came to the United States and said, I want to be free and be able to worship God according to the dictates of my conscience. Um, and that's that's really um, it's our it's our first freedom. Uh, and so I think that should be part of how uh, employees are trained. But also, yeah, I mean, I think it should be about student curriculum and I could go on for a while. So that that's my kind of two cents. Yeah, I, Verna, I'm going to be honest with you. Um... I've never had this question before, and I think it's a fascinating idea. Uh, I, I encourage you to pursue that um, and, um, you know, possibly develop uh, some recommendations for your employer on what ought to go into the program to um, celebrate, if you will, not just, uh, you know, racial diversity and sexual diversity, um, but uh, religious diversity and possibly substantively explaining the, the, in, the perspective of uh, Christians on why they do not agree with um, homosexual lifestyle. And I suspect you'll get uh, quite a bit of blowback, but it might produce some fruit and uh, plus you'll be testifying to the truth in the process. So the one, let me add one more thing to that, Richard. Um, and I, I think it's Judge 
I'd have to look up the name of the judge. There's a judge in Texas, a federal judge, in a case involving Southwest Airline flight attendants who objected to Southwest Airlines was was supporting the Women's March, which you might remember that around the 2016 election. Um, and she objected to uh, Southwest supporting this and asking their employees to support it. Uh, and Southwest uh, took adverse employment action against her. She filed a lawsuit, won, and one of the things that the judge ordered for the counsel for Southwest was they needed to attend religious liberty training held by the Alliance Defending Freedom. Now, this has made uh, a whole bunch of groups on the other side lose their mind, but I do think it's an example of the kind of thing that you could, you could point to and say, this is something that a federal judge has done and required. So Andrew, just to um, clarify, ADF has religious liberty training courses? I don't know if they do or not, but the judge ordered that the opposing counsel uh, attend training from Alliance Defending Freedom on the importance of religious liberty. Was, a was ADF representing the plaintiff? They were not. The judge just picked the ADF because they're so great at what they do um, and said, uh, we're gonna send you to religious liberty training with Alliance Defending Freedom. Well, Verna, um, there's lots of material out there on religious uh, freedom in America and the, our founding heritage and all that. Um, uh, so you might check out ADF's website, First Liberty's website. Um, you can go to truthandliberty.net to our resources page and find lots of material on um, America's founding there as well. Um, and it probably ought to include a healthy dose of that in whatever it is you propose to your employer. So thank you so much for calling in. That was an excellent question. We've got another one here, Andrew, which relates to the Department of Justice. The, the question is, how can the DOJ get away with, um, the question is unconditional action. I, th I think I, I'm gonna reinterpret that question to be, how can the DOJ get away with targeting people for political reasons? That's a really complicated question. I actually was hosting an event up in Denver today for the Colorado Lawyers Chapter of the Federal Society on the doctrine of prosecutorial discretion, which essentially says, as the Supreme Court has interpreted it, uh, prosecutors get to decide what crimes they're going to prosecute. Um, the trouble with that, so that's the short answer, is unless you can show some kind of outright smoking gun bias towards a particular political view or a, a racial group or a religious group, uh, prosecutors get to decide one way or the other. But what we're seeing is, you know, the DOJ coming in on behalf of folks who were burning down police precincts in, in Minneapolis and Portland you know, during the summer of 2020 and saying, those people were experiencing extreme anguish, we should take a light hand on them. There are literally sentencing statements um, entered by the Department of Justice in federal district courts along those lines. But then you see, you know, uh, prosecutions of folks who were at the January 6 events um, and, and the DOJ coming down as hard as they possibly can on them. Uh, my, my view, I'm a rule of law guy, I think the law should be uh, applied equally to all different kinds of people as long as the facts, you know, uh, bear, bear out that the crime was committed. You know, uh, yeah, we had a recent, um, I think it was earlier, maybe, maybe Monday or maybe Friday of last week, where a bunch of left-wing protesters stormed in and took over Speaker Kevin McCarthy's office in the Capitol. And so I think a lot of people are wondering, okay, uh, what's going to happen to these folks? Are they going to be sent to jail just like the January 6th people? Or is this different for some unknown reason? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Andrew, let's talk a little bit about, if we can, uh, parental rights. Um, I think this is an, an, um, an issue that is growing in importance and significance, as we see on many different fronts. Um, leftists, especially the LGBT uh, alphabet soup folks, um, trying to infringe on uh, you know roles of parents uh, in raising their children. Um, I had Erin Lee, who's from Northern Colorado, on the program a few weeks ago, and I don't know if you've heard of her story or not, but uh, basically her daughter was invited to art club after school, um, and it turns out it wasn't art club, it was uh, the Gay Student Alliance, and uh, she was uh, thoroughly uh, recruited into LGBT uh, identity, and was told that uh, she was was uh, transgender and that she was queer. She was asked questions like, "Who do? What kind of people do you like?" Meaning sexual attraction, um, and uh, are you 100% comfortable in your own body? This is a 12-year-old girl, and so she says no. So they say, "Well, therefore you're queer," um, and and uh, they give her rainbow flags and stickers and confetti and and things like this, and then um, tell her, "Oh, your mom and dad may not be safe, so you don't have to tell them about this meeting." Uh, but you, but I'm safe, and here's my cell phone number, says an adult, uh, not, a, not even a school employee, and here's a social media app. Let's get on here and you can create an account and then we can talk privately. Um, the girl comes home, tells mom, oh, mom, I'm trans. What do you mean you're trans? Yeah, that's what, uh, at school I found out today I'm trans. Um, of course, she has a whole new set of friends because of the kids that were in the club. And so uh, it started her on an 18-month downward spiral that ultimately ended in psychiatric care and a suicide note. Thank God she didn't actually carry it out. Uh, but this whole thing about teachers and LGBT activists in our schools hiding information from parents, secretly transitioning children. Colorado has gone so far as to pass a law that children uh, over the age of 12 can steward their own health care without parental notice or consent, can steward their own psychiatric care without parental consent. Um, what is, where are we headed if this doesn't get changed? And is, is, is our parental rights a fundamental, is this a fundamental constitutional right that's being infringed here? What are your thoughts on this subject? It absolutely is a fundamental constitutional right. Going back to a series of cases in the early 20th century, Pierce versus Society of Sisters and Meyer versus Nebraska, the court held that the family is the first teacher of democracy and faith, the most important institution in the United States. Um, and that when the government infringes upon the rights of parents to direct the upbringing and education of their children, they're violating the constitution. Um, so it absolutely is a, 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 an essential constitutional right. And we see it across the country uh, that schools and governments are trying to um, step in between parents and their children. Um, and I do think we're seeing some pushback in um, various lawsuits by folks like First Liberty and Alliance Defending Freedom. And I also think, you know, you see some signs of hope with, you know, the governor's election in, in Virginia and people showing up at school board meetings. I mean, everybody's seen them online and it's hard to ignore them um, because I think during COVID, people started to see what their kids are being taught in these schools um, and realizing just how far things have gotten. Well, it seems like that the uh, the teachers of today have been taught in possibly the the education 
schools, in our colleges and universities, you know, you go to college, you get an education degree, and then you go and take a state test and suddenly you can work in the public schools as a teacher. <laughs> are, are these teachers being taught a wrong view uh, about the relationship between public education and families? You know, I, I don't know what they're being taught one way or the other, but they are constitutional actors, just, just like a police officer has to respect the rights of um, people they pick up on the street, you know, the right to remain silent, all those things you hear in, in TV shows and movies that are that rights under the Constitution. Any state employee, especially public school teachers, have to be trained in and they should be trained in and respect the rights of parents and students. It seems like that schools today are um, think that it's their responsibility to do a lot more than just educating our kids in math, history, and science. It seems to they think it's their responsibility to shape their uh, attitudes about morality, shape their attitudes about sexuality. Um, you know, here, right here in Colorado, there was a bill passed several years ago um, that uh, we worked hard uh, yet unsuccessfully to stop that is called comprehensive sex education that teaches children all kinds of information and ideology about sex and assumes a particular uh, viewpoint on it um, and e even goes so far as to mandate that teachers uh, teach kids that abortion is an acceptable pregnancy outcome. Um, are the schools going too far? Are they invading uh, the province of parents and families now? And, and uh, what can we do legally to fight back? I think they absolutely are. And we see it with things like um, the push in Colorado uh, regarding these issues. Um, you know, allow schools, uh, you, you'll see teachers using preferred pronouns of students without telling um, their parents using different uh, gendered names without telling parents, things like that. Um, and I think that we're going to have to see the Supreme Court has been pretty wary of enforcing parental rights over the last, I'd say, three or four decades. Um, but I think you're going to have to see courts step in and say, um, you've gone too far. You can't get in between a, a, a parent and their children with these really um, important, essential questions and issues um, and, and stop this kind of indoctrination of a, of a particular government-enforced ideology. Um, so, folks, you're watching again the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. If you've just tuned in, uh, I'm Richard Harris. My guest today is attorney Andrew Nussbaum, a, a constitutional lawyer out of Colorado Springs. And uh, we still have time for one or two questions. If you want to uh, give us a call at 719-619-2300. For one, you know, Andrew, I know that you study history. Um, I'm, I do a little bit, not as much as I'd, I'd like. But if I look back at the history of tyrannical governments uh, over time, uh, one of the things that they seem to have in common is that they resent the family and they try to supplant the family. So, like, uh, you can look at Hitler Youth. You can look at, uh, you know, the the, the communists and their uh, how they will break down the family and um, and make mandate, you know, take control over, over functions that are traditionally parent roles and things like that, and allegiance to the state. I mean, the stories out of the communist revolution in Russia about children turning in their parents as, as uh, you know, enemies of the state and things like this are legendary. And, and now we see in America, along with this, this dangerous increase in, in infringement on civil liberties in so many different fronts, now we're seeing the invasion of parental rights. Does this concern you from a broader perspective? Do we, is this a Marxist ideology that's, or strategy that's permeating? What do you think about that? 
Yeah, Richard, I'm an Edmund Burke guy. And what Edmund Burke said is that in a democracy, meeting, mediating institutions are really important. And the first two mediating institutions between the individual and the state are the family and church. And then beyond that, civic associations. So, you know, your Kiwanis Club or your Rotary Club or things like that. Um, but I absolutely think, like I said from the outset, we cannot have our country if we're not moral and religious. That's again, that's a quote from John Adams. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, where do you learn religion first? You learn it at your dinner table. You learn it with prayer, um, with your parents and your siblings and going to church on Sundays. Um, and if and if parents aren't allowed to teach those kinds of fundamental uh, truths and then all of the good things that flow from it, um, we're in a bad place as a country. Well, so, Andrew, we're down to about four minutes left, and I want to just um, uh, talk some now about uh, the state of affairs in Colorado. So I mentioned some of the laws that are on the books now because of the Democrat-controlled legislature that infringe on parental rights um, that are indoctrinating our kids in, in immoral sexual behavior. Um, but, but even uh, beyond that, um, do you see, uh, has Colorado developed sort of an, an atmosphere of hostility towards religious belief and religious expression in many contexts? I think we do see more and more um, hostility in, in states like Colorado to traditional religious beliefs. And, you know, we see it in the uh, preschool cases I was just talking about where Christians want to start preschools and the state's not letting them do so unless they agree to their views on, on specific sexual issues. Um, I think we also see it, one of the places we see it a lot in our practice is um, uh, a, a charity, a Christian charity will receive public funds. And then after the fact, a city government will come in and say, oh, we didn't know that you're a Christian charity and you believe in traditional marriage, for example. And we saw that with the, the rescue mission up in Denver that the, uh, the city and county came in and said, we're not going to allow you to serve our homeless and receive city funds unless you, uh, you know, reverse your beliefs that have been part of Christianity for 2000 years. Um, so we've seen it there. Um, we've seen it. You know, one of the places we're seeing it is in the radical abortion regime that's been in place in Colorado. I mean, we're one of the worst states in terms of um, the way abortion laws have changed um, so much so that uh, the state has gone after uh, crisis pregnancy centers throughout the state um, that want to offer uh, abortion pill reversal and also counsel women in really hard times. They're calling them, I think, uh, what's the term, like anti-choice centers. They're using this very Orwellian language to refer to crisis pregnancy centers, and they've essentially outlawed it as a quote-unquote uh, unfair or deceptive trade practice. So um, the, unfortunately, you know, we see lots of good things happening at the national level, but you also see some retrenchment in places like Colorado. Well, so Andrew, once again, um, we've got a minute 30 left. How can people get in touch with you if they need your services or want to find out more? Yeah, we've got a website, nussbaumgleason.com. Um, you feel, feel, feel free to uh, reach out to us there with our contact information. We'd be more than happy to chat with anybody who's a friend of Truth and Liberty. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, these time, th these things take time to percolate down through the legal system, don't they? So the, the wins that we're seeing at the United States Supreme Court, uh, I mean, I, I think people should be encouraged. Um, it takes time. A lawsuit has to be filed and challenged. And, and, uh, and so, like, say here in Colorado, we're going to have to file some, litiga some litigation from time to time to say, hey, uh, the Supreme Court said you can't do this anymore. And that has to happen all across the nation. 
action and lawsuits take time. So I just want to encourage people to be vigilant. And like you've said, Andrew, stand up. If, if you're not willing to stand up and speak and to assert your rights, then there's no chance of your rights getting vindicated. You have to stand up, take a stand and uh, trust the Lord that it's all going to turn out for good in the end. And you'll be doing your part, not just as a, as a good citizen, but as a Christian in the, in the meantime, because uh, freedom is God's idea. So Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's been great. We're going to have to have you back on in the future, um, but it's been great having you. Richard, it's been an honor to be here, and thank you for all the good work you do at Tr Truth and Liberty. All right. Thank you. And guys, uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow at 3.30 Mountain Time for the next edition of the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. We love you guys. God bless you, and we'll see you later. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty Livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.